welcome to East General Broadcast, the podcast by the East of England Ambulance Service for the Ambulance Service. So this week we've got someone really exciting to talk to. Lots of people have been uh, messaging me talking about human factors and wanting to know how they can better prepare themselves for life on the front line. And I think that this person is one of the best people to talk to about it. Uh, Obviously, we had Martin Bromley on recently, who is fantastic. And what this guy does is uh, share a lot of those experiences and really complement what Martin was saying. He's a critical care doctor and is also a search and rescue specialist. So someone who knows how to deal with pressure. He's also written a book on the subject, literally called Peak Performance Under Pressure. So he knows what he's talking about. So we're going to dive straight into it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Stephen Hearns. So Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today. I really appreciate it. No, listen, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to uh, be involved. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. No, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. I wonder if you can start by telling us a bit about you and your experience. Yeah, so um, I am an emergency medicine consultant uh, based in, in Glasgow. I spend half of my time uh, in the emergency department and I spend um, half of my working week with the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service in, in Scotland, which is um, partly a, a HEMS pre-hospital service but also a a critical care transfer service for uh, remote and rural communities in in Scotland. Uh, And in addition to that, as my professional role, um, for over 20 years, I've been a a volunteer uh, in a a mountain rescue team in in Scotland and in Ayrshire. That's amazing. So quite a a vast mix of of skill sets that you've got. so you've you've written a book which a lot of people are very excited about. I wonder if you can go into a little bit about why you've written it and and kind of what it's about. How it originated really was at the time that I wrote the book, I was the lead consultant for the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service in, in Scotland, and and I had been so since the, the service started as a, as a group of volunteers about fifteen years ago. So we saw ourselves as quite a reflective organisation and, and hopefully quite a progressive uh, organisation. We put together a really good team of, of paramedics, nurses and, and, and doctors. Um, and we you know, spent a lot of time on the, the equipment side of things, on, on guidelines um, and on the, the, the sort of technical things that we did. And then we, we started to um, get... Um, aviation experts in to teach us about true resource management and how that applied to pre-hospital care and to, to retrieval medicine and I became really interested in that and what happened was um, the catalyst for the book I suppose was about five years ago we started wearing badge cameras and we got ethical approval to film ourselves when we were performing um, a pre-hospital uh, emergency anaesthetic. So the paramedic retrieval practitioner that was working with me would film me and I, I would film them. And we would use that for, for debriefs. And that, that was hugely beneficial in getting some insight into how we perform, how we communicate, etc., in higher pressure situations. 
And what became obvious to me was that sometimes I could absolutely nail this. If this was a, straightforward isn't the word, but if it was a predictable course, say with a serious head injury, and we anaesthetized the patient and took them away, then you know, my communication skill, my decision-making, my ability to lead the team um, was, was really pretty good in terms of, of performance. But what also became obvious to me was if the patient started to deteriorate or wasn't progressing in the way that I um, had predicted and things were becoming more complicated, or if I perceived that someone wasn't playing their part as well as they could, then my ability to perform really deteriorated um, in terms of um, making decisions, coordinating the team, and very much in terms of my verbal and my non-verbal communication. And what I found out was that there was a certain look that I could give other members of the team um, which showed, written all over my face, that um, I had lost control and I, and I wasn't very happy about the, the, the rest of the team, how they were performing. So my name's Stephen Hearns, and the nurses and the paramedics used to say that they'd been herniated um, on the, the retrieval. Um, so I started to think about psychologically and emotionally why I was behaving like that. Um, and I started to look at uh, the effects of pressure and performance, uh, what pressures we were facing, and tried to, for my own personal benefit and for the team, try to look at tools and systems that we could have put in place to, to improve our performance under pressure. And eventually that um, progressed on to, to writing the book. So, yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, I mean, it, it's, in, it's interesting that you say about... Uh, recording yourselves i just wonder when when you went to an incident and and things didn't go quite as well was your perception of how it went compared to the the recording of how it went were they kind of similar did you did you get an inkling that that you knew it hadn't gone as well as you thought and then you looked at the video and and kind of agreed it or was there a bit of a mismatch between what you thought you'd done versus what actually happened? The, well, there's always a mismatch in, in what you recollect and uh, from what you actually see uh, on the video. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment, but answering your first question first, um, yeah, I, I think the majority of the time you, you did have insight into the fact that things didn't go that well. But sometimes you get back from a job and you thought, I did really well there. And then you watch the video and you realise that um, there, were, there were quite a few things that you could have, could have improved. Um, so a couple of things are that, um, uh, number one, you, you're not aware particularly of your, your um, implicit communication, um, i.e. your facial expressions, your body posture, um, and the tone of your voice as well. You, 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 when you're in a high-pressure situation, you're generally not aware of that. The second thing is, is when you have got a surge of adrenaline and cortisol and you're in this zone of frazzle or of excessive pressure, your brain does not lay down uh, good quality um, memories. And that's a defensive mechanism um, that you're, we have evolved with. Uh, if you're in, a, in an unpleasant situation facing attack, um, the last thing you want to do is remember that vividly. So when you're in a high-pressure situation, you don't lay down good quality memories. So your recollection 
of a high pressure situation is quite flawed. And then the third um, factor is um, uh, a thing called cognitive dissonance, um, where if um, information comes in which contradicts our, our existing belief about a situation, then um, essentially we, we deny that. Um, and um, without, um, I suppose, um, the, the video and, and audio evidence, um, it can be difficult for people to um, uh, take on board or understand that their, their performance could have been better. So, so yeah, I think um, the majority of the time you know that a job hasn't gone well. The video um, footage gives you more detail about specifically what didn't go well and how you, you might have improved. Sometimes you get back and you think, I absolutely nailed that job. You watch the video and you realise you didn't. Um, but there are reasons um, why uh, that, that's the case. It's your, your insight at the time is, is, is often poor. Um, your ability to actually remember what happened is compromised. And then you've got this um, um, phenomenon of, of cognitive dissonance where essentially you're in denial that um, what you did uh, could have been better. And that's really, that's really interesting because I want to talk a bit about debriefing later on and, and I think that that will really play into it but first I, I kind of I want to talk about pressure kind of generally um I, I know when I talk to a lot of people about it there there tends to be and I'm generalizing quite a lot two camps either people are I don't like working under pressure you know I, I spend a lot of time if I've got a deadline I will get stuff done early and and make sure I've got plenty of time to to get the task done whereas other people and I probably put myself in this category as well like a bit of of pressure and a deadline I wonder if you could go into a bit about about what it's like working under pressure and why why pressure is sometimes actually important for our work yeah so it, it, I'm really glad you asked that question because people the connotation of pressure is um, very, very frequently negative. You know, if you listen to football commentators and you listen to about a team that are 2 0 down and the commentators going on about how much pressure they're under, as if that's going to negatively affect their, their performance. Um, the fact is that pressure at the right level is absolutely essential for us to perform well um, in terms of our decision making ability, our ability to carry out practical tasks. If, if we want to perform at our best, we actually need pressure. And it's only when pressure becomes excessive into the zone of stress that it's bad for our performance. Uh, and indeed, if there isn't enough pressure on us, then um, we, we don't actually become motivated, focused and, uh, and aroused. So, um, so yeah, um, what the, the book is, is based on or the theory of it is um, a thing called the, the Yerkes-Dodson curve, and that shows graphically the relationship between pressure and, and performance. And there are four phases uh, of performance based on pressure. If there isn't enough pressure on us, we are disengaged. Um, we um, we don't feel that motivation arousal, that stimulation. And then as the pressure increases on us, and there are dozens of pressures which can cause this, we get a low-level release of adrenaline and cortisol, um, and that pushes us into this zone of high-performance flow when we're at our most creative, we communicate, 
Um, optimally, we work better as part of a team. And then it's quite easy for that pressure just to increase a wee bit more and that pushes us into a zone of excessive pressure and we get a surging release of cortisol and adrenaline and we move into the zone of frazzle, uh, which is essentially a lot of us will develop a fight or flight response um, and our performance will start to decrease. And then there's a fourth zone, which is, is uncommon, but probably most of us who work in the pre-hospital setting will have seen this, um, maybe in ourselves, but certainly in, in other um, uh, healthcare professionals we'll work with, and that's the, the zone of freezing or choking. And that is um, when the pressure on us is really excessive and we fear that we're going to have a catastrophic outcome, that we are personally um, going to um, suffer because of this situation. And we actually freeze, we lose the ability to, to communicate, to carry out any practical tasks. Um, you know, people talk about a sort of rabbit in the headlights. Um, and again, that's an evolved um, defensive mechanism. Basically, if we're under attack, we, we play dead. Um, so, so, yeah, there are the four phases of disengagement, then high performance flow, then excessive pressure and frazzle moving into this zone of, of freezing or choking. No, that's that's really interesting, especially like you say in the in the kind of pre-hospital setting, because uh, you know crews could go to any kind of incident, couldn't they? From uh, someone who's who's fallen over and it's a kind of non-injury type incident, they need a bit of support, they need a, a, a check over, but it's nothing too dramatic. They need some uh, safety netting around them, and then the next job could be a a big multi-vehicle RTC that becomes a major incident with mass casualties and and kind of everything that can go wrong is going wrong. So the level of of stress and pressure can can flux between uh, between jobs in a in a shift, can't it? How do how does one deal with that kind of uh, mix of, of pressure you know it goes from high pressure to low pressure to high to low to low to high how do you deal with that I think you just uh, I don't know any specific strategies for, for dealing with it but you just um, uh, I suppose you, you just have to, to write it out and you if you're aware of these different phases and the person you're working with is aware of these different phases of pressure and performance then it can help um for you to be aware of the, the situation that you're in at the moment. Um, on, on Sunday, um, five days ago, I, um, I was involved in quite a, um, a, a difficult mountain rescue um, situation. Um, I'd been out cycling with my wife, um, and uh, from cycling with my wife, um, 40 minutes later, I was in a search and rescue helicopter being winched out on the side of a mountain, and then two minutes after that, I was being lowered down a, a 30 metre cliff to someone who was, who was multiply um, injured. And um, I, I think to, to I, I was aware of um, the, the different phases that, that I was um, I, I was in. I, I sort of probably moved from disengagement straight into sort of uh, frazzle. And then once we got to the patient, I was back into uh, the, the zone of flow. So I think that um, there are techniques that you can use we, we may be talking about those separately to move back try and regain um personal composure regain situational control when you're in the zone of frazzle to move back into the zone of, of flow um but i suppose that's part and parcel of 
um, working in, in pre-hospital care. Um, and that is actually why we're attracted to the, the job um, um, and moving between those, those different zones of, of stimulation and, and performance. Um, and, and one of the main reasons is when you're in that zone of flow, it's actually a really pleasurable place to, to be. You're using all that knowledge, all that experience, all those skills, and you know that you're doing the best job for, for the patient. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I agree with what you say about the attraction to the role. You know, you, you don't know what's going to what's going to come up. You didn't know on on Sunday that you were going to be winched into a helicopter and, and sent to yep. a job. So so that kind of that, I guess, excitement is 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 quite appealing. I, I want to ask you a bit more about about the flow state, because this is this is something that I've, I've seen a bit about and especially in, in your book seen in quite a bit of detail. Um, talk to us a bit more about it. You know, it's. Uh, I think I think some people kind of understand it when they're in it, but not uh, not when they're out of it. Talk talk to us a bit more about flow. Yeah, so uh, it was a, an Eastern uh, European uh, psychologist who uh, came up with this uh, this concept, or, or first described it a, a number of, of decades ago. Uh, and he did describe the, the, the state as, as, as flow. And he was talking more in the context, I suppose, of, of creative professionals, um, musicians, artists, and, and, and authors. And he's, he's written a whole book on, on, on the subject, but we'll probably all experience this state of, of flow when we become really focused on uh, the, the task facing us, and our concept of time is, is lost. Um, it's a, it's a pleasant uh, place to, to be. Um, we can access information in our long-term memory to, um, to, to help make decisions and carry out tasks well. Um, we feel really quite uh, motivated, stimulated, focused, um, aroused. Um, and it, it generally is really when we're we're at our best in terms of cognitive performance, in terms of teamwork, um, leadership, um, innovation. And um, I certainly think, although this was originally described as a safer, more uh, creative artists, that it really is um, applicable to um, lots of, of high pressure professions like like our own. Um, and. Um, as as we both described there, um, it is actually why we do our jobs. We all, um, you know, if you train as a paramedic or a, a, a technician or um, a, a doctor or a nurse, we all um, probably project and imagine those those situations of dealing successfully with a, a major trauma or a critically ill child or a cardiac arrest. Um, and when we're in those situations, and we, we know that we know our stuff, that we're performing the practical procedures well, we're working well as a team, that feeling or that sensation of, of flow is, is pleasurable and that is what attracts us to, to do our jobs. Yeah, definitely. I, I might be asking this question and it might be a little bit out of your, your sphere, so if it is, I apologise, but do you think you can train to be in a in a flow state or do you think that it is just something that comes naturally again going back to the example of you know you crews may get a, a wide mix of 
of jobs throughout the night, some of which may require uh, not as much kind of cognitive system two thinking um, as as others, and some may be less likely to get into that kind of flow state. Is it something that we can kind of not trick ourselves, but help ourselves get into, or is it something that that just has to kind of come naturally? So I, and that's a really good question. No one's ever answered asked me that before. So and. Um, uh, you can't, um, as far as I'm aware, um, make a conscious decision that you're going to be, um, you're going to move into that zone of flow because it's a, um, a subconscious physiological response to have the release of those stimulant stress hormones. So if you're in a zone of disengagement, um, it's not going to be possible to move yourself into that that zone of, of flow if you're not an, under enough pressure then you can increase the pressure on yourself to achieve that zone of, of flow. But what you can do, and I suppose that's what the, the book and the, the course are about, is you can move things the other way. If you're in the zone of frazzle, then you can. there are techniques that you can use to move yourself in, in real time in that situation back into the zone of flow. And I suppose, uh, again, what the book and the course are, are about as a as an organization as a team as an individual you can prepare for really high pressure situations and if you if you train you put the cognitive aids in place um, especially through drilling simulation etc then you are going to hold that zone of flow um, much longer before you move into the zone of, of frazzle so if you get to and, and you know I, I don't think many people talk about that but um, I, we, we all get there. You go to, um, you know, a road traffic collision that turns out to be pretty minor, or something that sounds as if it's, um, you know, it's quite an early sort of job, and you get there and there's not much up with the the, the patient. Um, then actually, we can often be in that that zone of disengagement with that that patient, um, and maybe not assess things as as well as we might, etc. Um, but I think in those situations, it's very difficult to to force yourself into the zone of flow. But it's easier uh, the other way to, uh, if you're in the zone of excessive pressure, to to control the situation and, and move back into flow. Yeah, definitely. And I think that leads us quite nicely on to the the next bit. the The amount of of comments and questions that I've been asked to ask you um, is is mad. the The amount of uh, uh, questions around can you ask him what his Jedi mind tricks are for dealing with stress in these situations so I, I wonder if it's possible and I wonder if we could use it in relation to uh, the sort of timeline of an incident to talk through some of uh, some of those tips tricks and techniques that you've you've got in the book to to how to manage stress and and pressure and how how an individual can kind of help themselves and the the team around them. Yeah, no problem. So in the book, um, I call this uh, chapter um, "Pressure Relief Valves," um, and I, I do I, I don't use it in the book, but there is a mnemonic for that, which is um, is "Calm Down," um, which we can maybe talk about a bit later. But um, so. There are a couple of techniques to regain personal composure, and um, I think the two most effective ones uh, with with that are controlled breathing, which I, I think a lot of the people listening will will already be aware of. 
if we're in this zone of a frazzle, we're getting this surge of adrenaline and cortisol, we've got this sympathetic nervous system overdrive, we want to, to control that and, and reduce that sympathetic overdrive. And a really simple way of doing that is to control your breathing, to slow your breathing down. Um, and, and to simplify things, I like to think about an eight-second breath um, and about eight breaths per minute. So slowly, um, over a couple of seconds, breathing in, holding it in uh, for a couple of seconds, breathing out, holding it out, breathing it in, uh, breathe in again. And there is good evidence to, to show that that will um, improve your your, your um, physiological state um, as well as reducing your breathing rate. It reduces your heart rate and it will help you control that sympathetic overdrive in that zone of a frazzle. And I particularly like that because you can do it quite covertly. Um, if I'm leading a team and I, I feel as if I'm, I'm losing um, situational control, then I can do that and no one else does it. And certainly when I was about to be Lordo, I'm not the best with the exposure. Um, and on Sunday when I was uh, about to be Lordo off this uh, cliff, um, I was um, performing control breathing. Um, the next thing um, which um, I think is really um, effective is to start thinking um, about a thing called the cognitive reframing. So what happens is when you approach a situation before you even aware of it, it's totally um, not conscious thought at all, within milliseconds, you will form a cognitive appraisal of the, the situation. And that's based on pattern recognition. And it's another evolved protective response. And you can get two cognitive appraisals of a situation, one of threat, i.e. I'm going to come to harm. This is too big a problem for me to deal with. Or you can get a cognitive appraisal of challenge, i.e. this is going to be difficult, but I can handle this. And you, So if you do end up losing composure, the pressure is becoming too great, then a cognitive reframing technique can help um, you to move from that zone of um, excessive uh, pressure, this cognitive appraisal um, of, um, of threat into one of challenge. And instinctively, what you would think that would be about would be stopping and going, right, what's the problem in front of me? What do I need to do? But actually what you, it's all about, it's a bit like um, pressing the reset button on your, your computer, control, alt, delete, is actually get yourself out of that situation and think about something completely different um, for 20 or 30 seconds, or even um, do a practical procedure that's really familiar to you. Um, so a lot of the time in a pre-hospital situation, even if it's really time pressured, I'll actually pretend that I've got to make a phone call and I'll get out of the, the room the patient's in or I'll get out the back of the ambulance and I'll go away just by myself for 20 or 30 seconds to achieve this um, cognitive reframing. Uh, and I do find that really effective from moving myself from the uh, cognitive appraisal of threat um, into a cognitive appraisal of, of challenge. Um, the, the next thing I would, I would talk about, and I think in pre-hospital care, we do this really pretty badly, is a cognitive pause or a rally point. Um, and this is um, something which uh, special forces um, soldiers talk about is if 
you choose the right moment, a bit of a, a lull in the tempo of things, actually stopping and um, having a, a discussion amongst the team um, with regard to what everyone's perception of the problems um, are and indeed what actions need to be to be taken. And often in the pre-hospital situation, we would think that there isn't time for this, but in my experience, there's, there's generally, most of the time there is the time to have this uh, cognitive pause or a rally point. And it's really beneficial because as we all know, Everyone at a pre-hospital scene has got different levels of pre-hospital experience and knowledge. They've all arrived at the scene at different times. They've, they've taken on board different pieces of information. And none of us have got a full picture of what's happening. And if you actually stop and have a discussion, it means that everyone in that team can achieve a shared and an accurate mental model of the problems that you're facing and then you can start to delegate specific tasks. So stopping, having a discussion, achieving a shared market mental model, listing and prioritising what needs to be done, and then delegating all of those tasks. The key point to a rally point, and this is where I, I still do this badly, is it's very easy um, for the person who's leading the pre-hospital scene to say, right, everyone gather around. Um, this is what I think is happening, um, and does everyone agree with that? And what you end up with because of that is um, you end up with a command gradient and you end up with groupthink, and there's a consultant in pre-hospital care there who says, this is what I think is happening. Other people in the team might disagree with that, but they'll just think, oh, I must be wrong. So the, the most effective way to do this is actually for the leader to ask each individual person that's there, Right, what do you think is happening? What do you think is happening? What do you think we need to do um, to achieve that shared NACNET mental model and then discuss what needs to, to be done? Um, so I suppose that, that's three things um, so far, um, controlled breathing, uh, cognitive uh, reframing and, and a rally point. And um, other ones are to remember to use cognitive aids um, and to... Um, outsource decision making if if you um, if uh, there's this possibility to do that um, outsource some stuff to people who are, who are outside the high pressure situation. So so those are the the, the main ones the um, the controlled breathing um, the the rally point getting out of the situation um, to cognitively reframe to remember to to use cognitive aids like um, GR Calc to use checklists um, and in our situation for prolonged retrievals, actually sometimes phoning our friends um, and, and helping them and um, ask them to help with them decision making can be can be beneficial. Uh, no, that's that's so so interesting. And if I was being a bit unkind, I guess, and, and generalizing everything that you're saying, essentially it's all the all the, the techniques that you mentioned there were around uh taking yourself out of the situation or stopping stopping your brain kind of instinctively uh, making decisions for yeah. you and giving yourself the opportunity to make a decision that's best for the situation rather than one that's fueled by adrenaline. Is that fair to say? I think that's a, a really uh, good way to, to describe it because 
So what we have to remember is man's been on Earth for 200,000 years and we are programmed to, we're not programmed to deal with complex situations. We're not programmed to deal with huge amounts of information. Um, and we are programmed to protect ourselves from threats. And that is the way that our minds instinctively uh, react. And, and you're exactly right. Um, Professor Steve Peters, who is the sky cycling, um, uh, one of the sky cycling doctors, has uh, written a book called The Chimp Paradox. And the whole book is, is, a, is about what you described there, is that your brain in a matter of milliseconds will assess a situation, compare it to one you've been in before and may decide that the whole situation is, is a real threat to you and you want to get out there and um, out of that situation or you want to act um, aggressively, um, etc. And the whole book is about trying to, you can't control it, you can't stop it, but what you can try and train yourself to do is not act upon that and try and just wait for rational um, thoughts to um, uh, to come into play and try and overcome that instinctive response due to that surge of adrenaline um, and, and that feeling of, of threat. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. So, uh, I, I mean, there's there there is so much to go to go into there. One of the one of the things that that I've noticed about myself and and colleagues have mentioned as well is that when you're in that situation, let you know, let's say either you're you're single crewed on a rapid response vehicle or you it's only you and a, another crew member. How how do you identify in yourself that you are? that you are feeling these emotions and that you need to to stop because I, I know from experience I was talking to you before we started recording that at the minute during covid I'm trying to buy a house and plan a wedding and there are definitely moments where I've been caught up in in situations and then after the incident realized actually I didn't it didn't need to to feel like that or go like that it I could have could have stopped it there and then is is there a way of of kind of checking in with yourself in that kind of crisis moment? Um, I would actually say no, to, to be honest with you. I'll be really honest with you. Um, what we do in, um, in the retrieval service is um, we, we always are, are fortunate enough to work in a team of at least two, sometimes four. And um, what we are looking for our signs and the people that, that we are working with, signs in your partner, especially if you've worked with them for years and you can recognise their, their behavioural traits and their facial expressions, um, you know, how they're, they're speaking. And um, it's to recognise that you're the person you're working with is moving into that zone of frazzle and have some techniques to um, try to cognitively offload them and trying to help them back into the zone of flow. The problem when you are working by yourself is that um, you, you, at that time, you genuinely, genuinely perceive that situation as, as one of, of threat. And I can completely perceive even going to something like a cardiac arrest, which is quite a prescribed um, sequence of events um, which has been been drilled etc but with one pair of hands trying to uh, communicate trying to treat the patient trying to uh, uh, manage relatives etc 
um, it is absolutely a natural response that you are going to move into uh, the, the zone of frazzle and you're going to perceive that as a potentially catastrophic outcome and um, it's a, a threat to, to yourself. Um, so, um, and then, but to actually have insight into that in that situation and to pull yourself back out of that is, is very difficult. I suppose the only technique that you potentially could use for that is is mental rehearsal, where if you are um, operating and you know, single person on a, a an ambulance um, or as a, a rapid response unit, is to actually sit down and, and imagine yourself in some of those situations and think about how you are going to feel, think about what you're going to um, see around you, what you're going to hear, and um, imagine yourself moving into that zone of, of frazzle, how that's going to feel, um, and then um, actually rehearse some of these techniques for, for trying to control um, the, the excessive pressure, um, such as the, the breathing techniques or, or you know, trying to, to cognitively reframe. But I think that's really difficult. Uh, you know, how do you how do you leave the, the room when you're the only person there, even for 20 seconds? And you can't exactly have a, a rally point uh, and meeting with yourself, really. Um, so um, I, I think that's, that's difficult. But the, the probably the most effective way to prepare for that is the idea of, of mental rehearsal and, and picture yourself in real time in that situation, how you're going to feel, um, and and practice using those those techniques through through mental rehearsal and, and visualization. Definitely. And, you know, I, I know it's a it's a very challenging situation, you know, a, a single person turning up to a, like you say, a cardiac arrest, they have to do X number of tasks at once. I can't remember where I heard it from recently, but I heard someone talking about outsourcing common sense in these kind of situations. Does that resonate? Yeah, I'll let in, uh, uh, I like that. Yeah, I like that. Just the idea of, you know, if you turn up, you know, you've got you've got control. There are there are people uh, around. You can you know ring. We've got a clinical advice line, for example, that people can ring and they speak to a, a senior clinician. I guess it's just about how do you pass on some of that thinking to someone else at that time, so you can focus on the the nitty gritty of what you need to do, isn't it? Yeah, listen, that's um, um, I, I, when we were talking earlier um, about, um, and, and actually outsourcing is, is the, the letter that I've used in this, uh, you know, uh, Camden sort of um, acronym. And, and yeah, you're right. So what you, you've got is you're in a very high pressure situation. Um, you might not be thinking as, as, as rationally as, as you would like to, um, but you've got someone else who has got a, a knowledge set and has got access to, um, you know, say, say checklists or, or cognitive aids, and they're not in that high-pressure situation. So absolutely getting um, someone like that on, on the phone um, and, and outsourcing um, some of the, the decision-making is, is, uh, is a really useful technique to, to use, and it's certainly one that I, I use as well, definitely. Definitely. Uh, that sounds really good. So you mentioned the, the mnemonic. I wonder if you could go through it for us. Yeah, so it's, um, as I say, I, I haven't actually described it in the book, but uh, uh, so uh, um, partly because of the reasons we were talking about uh, before about my uh, my behaviours on scene, we had a, 
a prize giving ceremony um, about five years ago in the, the retrieval service in Scotland, and the paramedics gave me the, my own Cam Doon Award uh, because of my behaviour. So, so I come up with a mnemonic sort of uh, uh, based on that. So the the C is is for controlled uh, breathing. Um, a is to articulate how you're you're feeling in, in this rally point, and to L is about listing and prioritising actions, which um, sometimes when you um, you think there's an overwhelming list of things that needs to be done, so if you just list them and prioritise them, M is about mental model, um, achieving a shared and accurate mental model with this uh, rally point. Um, D is for delegation. Um, of tasks and decisions to cognitively offload you if you're the leader. Um, o is uh, moving outside for this, this idea of cognitive reframing, getting away from the pressure at the centre of the scene. Um, the next goal is outsourcing, as we described there, actually sort of phoning a, a friend. Um, and at the end is for uh, nutrition. Um, and, and hydration, um, especially if you're on prolonged jobs, making sure that um, you're you're keeping your your um, glucose levels up and you're you're well enough hydrated. So so calm down, uh, control breathing, articulating how you're feeling, listing and prioritising what needs to be done. Um, M for for shared and accurate mental model. D for delegation. Uh, o for uh, getting outside to cognitive reframe. Uh, the second goal for outsourcing, uh, getting advice and, and helping with decision making, and aim for nutrition and, and hydration. That's that's fantastic, and I think that's that's definitely something that I'm going to steal with pride, if you don't mind, and use everywhere that I can. <laughs> um, uh, also, I love the fact that it was your your colleagues who gave you this award. That's a really kind of just culturey. Uh, sharing caring <laughs> attitude that they had but it's great that you've been able to to take it and turn it into something something really positive uh, so moving away slightly from from the incident itself uh, we mentioned earlier about about debriefing and and kind of its importance uh, I know that there's a lot of conversation about about debriefing and and whether hot debriefing is the right thing versus cold and, and I'm not not worried too much about that but just for, from a performance perspective, how important is it to understand what you did and what you could have done in an incident? Oh, listen, I think it's um, it's absolutely vital, um, but it needs your organisation needs to have the right culture and it needs to have selected the right people. Um, uh, in order for debriefing to be done um, effectively. If you, you don't have a, an open, uh, a just, a psychologically safe culture, then people are not going to be honest and open um, about how they felt about things. Um, they're not going to be open to um, potentially you know, negative comments about their, their own performance. Um, so um, a, a, a debriefing system to be effective needs to be part of a, an organisation with the right culture, the right leadership, and it needs to have selected um, people with the right um, uh, attitudes as, as, as well. But um, I I think it's um, it's hugely uh, beneficial as, as a debrief, and I think in um, not just from a perspective of um, learning what you could have done better, but also for your your own, uh, you know, personal well-being to 
to be reminded that sometimes you do things actually really pretty pretty well. And I've been involved in a, a number of situations where things, and, and I'm, I'm talking about some pretty major um, events where we haven't debriefed. Um, I was involved in a, a, an avalanche and a mountain rescue training exercise about five years ago, and uh, we haven't uh, ever really debriefed that. And um, I, um, it's, it's still left me with some unanswered questions about that. So I think debriefing is is absolutely essential um, to to improve our performance, to um, improve teamwork and, and honesty amongst your team, uh, but also sometimes to, to actually let people know that they, they did a good job. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's fair to say as well that while East isn't there with the, the kind of safety culture, we are definitely working towards, I know myself in the patient safety team, uh, are, are working towards that because... It, it is difficult to change culture and it is difficult to to get that perspective um but you're right yeah. you, you do need that don't you in order to be able to be open and honest and talk about successes and challenges and not feel the the kind of worry of any repercussion or anything yeah listen you're, you're right um I de- definitely the other thing you need is time and I think that's challenging for, for any part of the, the NHS, whether it's uh, an ambulance service or in, in an emergency department. Um, and we are really lucky with the EMRS in that um, you know, we've got a, a nice working environment. Um, we, we do have the right culture, but also the, the frequency of jobs is, is such that generally you know, we do have um, half an hour after we do a job to actually sit down in a nice environment and to to talk things through um where that that would be nigh on impossible in an emergency department setting um and for a you know a, an ambulance service or ambulance crew that you're just bouncing on to the next uh, job after dropping off a patient so so time is is important as as well and that's a, a resource that unfortunately many of us uh, don't have uh, yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree. Uh, moving on ever so slightly, uh, we, we talked about kind of how to manage your yourself at a scene and, and a team. Uh, I, I read a few bits about managing up as well as managing down on situations. I wonder if you could give us any any advice. So, you know, if, if the, the person in charge is is in that zone of frazzle rather than that zone of flow. What can we do as someone in a sort of command and control situation to rather than rather than undermine them to to help them if if that's a if that's not too not being too blunt. That's a really interesting uh, question. Um suppose what we probably have to consider there is why the person who is in charge um, is experiencing excessive pressure and is in that zone of frazzle, which is is compromising their performance. Now, and that comes back to actually thinking about what the pressures are and that they're facing. Now, one of the pressures that they're going to be facing is they're not going to perceive a threat to their physical well-being, but what they are sometimes experiencing is a threat to their reputation um, that they perceive themselves as um, someone who is, is 
knowledgeable, who's got skill, who's got experience and is capable of leading the, the team well. And subconsciously, they are um, aware that their performance at that time isn't uh, often um, meeting the standards that they expect for themselves. And if, if the situation is, is deteriorating, that then they're going to carry the responsibility for it and their reputation is going to be under under threat. And if you approach them, uh, sometimes obviously in, in lots of situations, time critical situations, you do need to be blunt. Um, but if you approach them when they're in that mindset, bluntly letting them know that they're not doing a, a, a great job, then that's probably going to exacerbate that pressure and, and may make the, the situation worse. Um, I think there's, I suppose, on, on a basic level, three things that we could do. One is simply asking, is there anything that I can do to, to help you? Or specifically identifying um, a, a, a large issue that they are, they are dealing with and offering to take, take charge of that, to cognitively offload them. Um, there is trying to get them to cognitively reframe, um, like trying to get them out of the high pressure situation for a, for a short period and um, uh, to, to cognitively reframe. But I think the most important thing is to, and most likely to be successful, is to get them to have a, a rally point, um, i.e. get people round um, it's, it's like in the same way that you would at a major incident with all the, the you know the incident commanders, but get people round and actually talk through um, what the problem is and, and what needs to to be done. And I think that would be very effective in cognitively reframing them and cognitively uh, off offloading them. And again, if you are I suppose lower down the command gradient than, than they are, um, but you're probably more switched on as to what's happening. We've all been there with that. Um, then um, you can guide that rally point um, to a more, a more accurate mental model of, of what the problem is and what needs to be done. So, so yeah, I think those, those three things. So offering to take on board a responsibility for a, a certain part of the incident, cognitively offload them, um, try to get them to cognitively reframe by taking them out of the situation, but probably most effectively trying to get them to have a cognitive pause, a rally point, and you managing that um, as, as best you can to try and get them back on track. I, I think that's that's really important and, and really useful. So so thank you so much for that. Uh, part of the reason why I ask is that uh, one of the other people that I'm interviewing around the kind of human factors cognitive element of of work is martin bromley who as i'm sure you know oh, yeah. is very open about his uh his wife's incident uh in in surgery and so i people people have asked me a lot about how do you how do you control up a situation when like you say in a in a command and control situation if the consultant says i think it's x how do people have the confidence and the ability to to challenge and say Actually, I think it's why, and I, you know, I know that a lot of that comes down to culture and and relationships and things. But those kind of tools are are definitely really really useful, I think, um, and will hopefully have a have a positive impact on on our staff. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I, as you're probably aware, the um, I, I described this in the book as, as well the the, the sort of cuss mnemonic for those those situations where. Um, you know, it's a, um, a, a escalating um, 
series of of terms that you can use when you're uh, when you think that the person in charge is doing the, the wrong thing, um, or so I'm, I'm concerned about this. Um, I'm unsure that we're doing the right thing. If that doesn't work, then um, I don't think this is safe up to the point where stop. Um, and that's um, a terminology and a, a mnemonic that's um, uh, taught to, to theatre nurses in, in particular in case you know the, the surgeon is carrying a wrong side surgery, for, for example. Um, but all of that, the um, you know, command gradient, groupthink, um, etc. Um, to be aware of, of why people um, behave like that. Um, both the, the leader needs to be aware of that, and the, the other people in the, the team, are, I think, are really, really important. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, so I'm I'm aware of time, and I know that we I could I could talk to you for hours about this stuff and go into great detail, but I think I, I don't know how much people would listen. So I'll, I'll <laughs> try and keep it brief. Uh, obviously, there are you've put in loads of of really interesting examples of how to how to manage your own kind of mental workload and how to support others. The one that I picked out, for example, is. Uh, uh, RAF helicopter pilots when they're landing in uh, sites like snow or or desert dust and they lose vision and they talk about uh, constantly saying happy 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 until they land and if they stop talking then the rest of the crew tell them to go around again I think that's that's a yeah. really interesting example of of kind of highlighting your own mental uh, mental fatigue mental stress kind of and, and getting others to support you but is there anything that that you couldn't fit into you know book one for example is there something or are there some tips tricks advice that you think god i wish i could have put that in um to be honest though um the, I, i've gone over the book again um in the past few months but trying to put this um, online course to, together um, I, I think I maybe have structured things um, differently, but I, I don't think that there's anything um, in addition to what I've written in the book that I've, I've come across that I, I would have added, uh, to uh, To be honest with you. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. No, that's, that's great, because that yeah. means that people can just kind of go to... Uh, go to this but uh, you've, you've mentioned a few times about the course I, I, I know about it but can you just tell us a, a bit yeah. more about that yeah so the, the original idea of the book was that it was going to be pre-course reading for a face-to-face course um, and so when I, I finished the book uh, last year um, I, I ran two pilot courses one with uh, a group of uh, a dozen paramedics and technicians in, in Glasgow and then I run one for British mountain guides who are, you know, alpine mountaineering guides. And that was all going quite well. I was just about to launch the face-to-face course with maybe with 20 people on it, small group work. And then uh, the, the coronavirus pandemic started. So what I decided to do was um, uh, create an online version of the, the course, uh, which I um, launched about, about two weeks ago. So it's on a um, a website platform called my, my main website is called corecognition.co.uk, um, and uh, the course is on corecognitioncourses.co.uk. And what I've got there are again, it's based on the book. It would be um, ideal if you read the book and went through the, the course, but you can go through the course without looking at the book. 
Um, and I've got about a dozen short lectures, uh, video presentations, and then there's half a dozen sort of downloads and, and exercises um, as, as well. So there's about um, in total about six hours of content there, but um, you can go through it and uh, or just pick out bits that are of most interest to you. Um, and that's been that's it's, it's certainly been a lot of interest and a, a lot of good reviews so far. Um, and there's a ecology paramedics. Um, I've got a a fifty percent discount code for that as well. So um, if anyone's in the ecology of paramedics and they look in the CPD section, there they'll basically get access to it um, at half price. So yeah, that was quite interesting standing in front of a green screen in my my living room uh, for days and ends. But uh, yeah, it's uh, been an interesting wee wee project. Uh, definitely. I mean, I've had a, a brief look at it, and I think it's it's really, really interesting. And I, I I will always signpost people to those kind of resources. I'll put all the the links to to your work uh, in the in the show notes of this this section as well, okay, so people can uh, have a look at it. I suppose then that that kind of leads me on to my next question, which is um, obviously you know there's. There's so many newly qualified paramedics and uh, apprentice technicians and uh, all these different clinical grades who are joining the ambulance service or even joining, you know, other other healthcare professions. How how do they get the the training and the experience apart from you know reading your book and and doing the courses and things like that? How do they get the experience of managing these? stressful situations or managing themselves or others in the stressful situations when they may not have come across them you know I, I, I know paramedics who have been in the job five six years and still not had a, a cardiac arrest for example so how how do you kind of prepare for those things apart from you know like you say doing the courses how do you get get yourself ready I don't know that you I suppose it's, it's arguable whether repeated experience to these high pressure situations actually improves your ability to deal with them um just because you say for example you've been driving for 20 years doesn't actually mean that you're that much better than a driver that's been driving for two years so um repeated exposure to something if, if you don't have um feedback and you're not continually trying to improve things doesn't actually necessarily improve your your performance uh, yeah so just because you're you're long in the tooth and you've been a paramedic for 30 years and you've you've dealt with x number of cardiac arrests and major trauma patients doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're better than, than someone who's um, you know been qualified for up to a few years i suppose what it's about is and it's the same in the, the medical profession and the nursing profession as, as well, is there is so much emphasis on technical skills and technical knowledge and a lot less emphasis on the non-technical side of things, um, human factors, behaviour, response to pressure, uh, communication under pressure, teamwork, etc. There's just so little emphasis on that during... Um, you know, uh, undergraduate training, um, and I, I really think that um, that needs to be that needs to be a, a addressed, and in, in, in my opinion, it needs to be a mandatory part of um, of, of basic training for for all healthcare professionals. And um, I, I I spend quite a bit of my time um, looking at uh, cases of alleged medical negligence in the emergency department and in pre-hospital care. I, I work for the, the GMC as, as well. 
and so much of the time um, um, errors in, in patient care have occurred not because the person didn't have the right level of knowledge or skill but um, it was uh, down to, to non-technical skills and, and poor communication etc and and um, not being able to, to handle pressure well. So um, I don't think these skills necessarily develop with more experience on, on the job, on the road, um, but they, they do improve um, with um, formal teaching and, and learning about, about why we behave the way that we do and, and having uh, the, the techniques to, uh, uh, to deal with those high-pressure situations from a psychological perspective. You can't see, but I am furiously nodding along to everything that you say, because uh, <laughs> from my experience in in patient safety, I, I do think that that's that's a lot of it. You know, uh, uh, people are are kind of, you know, they're very highly trained in in their skill sets. And it's about how to to implement them, you know, in the best way possible. Someone so I don't know how how great an analogy it is, but someone talked about um good tires on a ferrari you know you you've done all this work on a on a great vehicle but then you you put poor tires on it and it can't grip and it can't brake and it can't accelerate so what's the point in having all of that technology and all of that um that that kind of science built into it and i i suppose it's it's kind of a, like i say a bad analogy for for clinicians you've got all these different skill sets and abilities but if they can't implement them then then it just doesn't work does it oh listen you're, you're dead right you can um you can have all uh you know you can have all the knowledge and all the you know the practical skills but um if you uh if when you're in a high pressure situation you're not able to use that knowledge you're not able to access it um and your ability to perform those practical skills deteriorates um then there's there's less point in, in having them in the first place Definitely. So I, I, I'm going to wrap up with one final question. And it's a horrible question because it's about summing up everything that you've done and trying to put it in a sentence. So I'd, I apologise from the outset. But if you had 30 seconds with someone and could give them give them some sort of advice, you know, just one one nugget, whether it's signposting, whether it's just a one technique, what, what would it be in your opinion? Um, I... What would I say? I, I think people need to understand that um, pressure is, is positive um, for performance and it's only when it becomes excessive that it compromises uh, your ability to do the best thing for your patients and, and work uh, well with other members of, of the team. And I um, one I, I think the key bit really is, and not the key bit, I think one of the most valuable things in a high-pressure situation, in the pre-hospital situation, is rally points. Actually, um, pausing, even though you, you feel you don't have time to do it, and getting the, the everyone in the team on, on the same page with a, a shared mental model, and then dividing up the, the jobs that need to be done. So um, I think that's the, the, yeah, if there was one tool that I would recommend, it's, it's a rally point in pre-hospital care. That that's fantastic, and and thank you so much for for taking my my cheeky question because I, I I hate asking it, but I know that people always go, what's what's one trick? So I'm going to wrap up there, Stephen. Uh, can you just uh, point out again where people can find you if they want to find out a bit more? Yeah, so my my, my main website is called uh, corecognition.co.uk. Um, there's a bit about the book there, and there's 
lots of blogs and and uh, 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 podcasts and videos there. And then this new course uh, that I've released is at uh, um, corecognitioncourses.co.uk. Perfect. I'll I'll make sure that they're linked as well, and we'll we'll signpost every everyone to them. But for now, Stephen, thank you so, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been fascinating to talk to you. And uh, yeah, thank you so much and, and take care. Good man. Thank you. I've enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope that you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Stephen. And just for reference, my fiance and I definitely used the Calm Down acronym quite a lot when we were buying our house, and I cannot explain the amount of stress it took away from the situation. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. As always, all of the information will be in the description box below this podcast, as will my email address. If you have any feedback, please send me an email. Some of the stuff I've had so far has been absolutely fantastic and really valuable. For now, I'll say thank you so much and take care.